You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Uh, Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the show is brought to you this week by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. It features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. Evan Ratliff remains uh, on vacation. Lost at sea. But Aaron's here. What's up, Aaron? Hey. How are you, sir? I'm good. Got a very exciting podcast for you today. Uh, I interviewed Carol Loomis. Carol Loomis retired last year after more than 60 years at Fortune Magazine. Uh, To put in perspective the career she had, she won a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1993 and then just kept working for another 20 years. She's uh, she's amazing. She's amazing. She also uh, just happens to be Warren Buffett's best friend. They talk on the phone every day. She's edited every one of his uh, annual reports for 40 years. Uh, she's just amazing. And she came to Dumbo. She sat in the chair you're sitting in right now, and she talked about all of it, and uh, it was great. Uh, we are sponsored this week, as always, by Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. We have to double thank the good people at MailChimp because they are sponsoring our third anniversary party, which is nary two weeks away are we still taking entries sure yeah so if you leave us a review on itunes uh send us an email to podcast.longform.org and we will draw some of those names out of the hat and invite you to the third anniversary party which will otherwise only be open to people who have been on this show and there's no third person to throw that to so i'm gonna have to throw it to myself here is max with carol loomis Hey, Carol Loomis. Hey, Max. Thank you for uh, coming to Brooklyn. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I uh, I feel like we should tell our listeners what you told me when I just met you downstairs. Fine. Which was, uh, what was the last time that you were in Brooklyn for an interview? As far as I can remember, it was either sometime in the late 50s or the early 60s, and I interviewed, wait for it, Branch Rickey. <laughs> Branch Rickey, owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yes. Do you remember what you talked to him about? Uh, we did. I was then in a, in a junior spot where I was the number two person on a story, and the writer had gotten interested in the subject, and I believe the headline was something like this, What Baseball Can Teach Business. 
And so he tried to apply, and he later told me he didn't think that he had pulled it off very well, but I thought he did a decent job. Um, he tried to apply the economics of baseball, for instance, the trading of players yeah. to business. Why shouldn't business make an attempt to trade its executives hoping to fill holes or um, or send someone with um, wonderful skills to a company that obviously needed it. <laughs> it was it was very interesting, and there were more facets too. That's the one I remember. I feel most. like that would make a business coverage maybe like a little bit more exciting. <laughs> I think probably that's what he had in mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, it is an honor to uh, give you another reason to come back to Brooklyn for an interview. Great. Glad <laughs> to be here. I'd like to start at the start. Okay. You were born in a small town in Missouri. Yes. You went to J school at the University of Missouri. Yes. You spent two years uh, working on a magazine for Maytag uh, in absolutely Iowa. Absolutely, in Iowa. And here's where I'd like to start our conversation, which is through like what sounds like basically sheer force of will. You got yourself a job at Fortune magazine in 1954. That's exactly right. So tell me about what Fortune magazine was like when you walked through those doors, January 25th, 1954. What was that magazine like? First of all, the people there did not go to work as early as I came for that interview. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got there at 9 o'clock. Nobody had told me when to come, and there was absolutely nobody on the floor. It turned out that starting time was officially 9.30, and that uh, uh, many people stretched that to be 10 or, or whatever. And so I sat in the dark for myself uh, for a half hour till the woman who had hired me came, and there I was in the reception room. Oh, I, could, I can totally identify with that feeling when you, like, you don't know the score or the rules at all, and you're like, you just like uh, got that pit in your stomach. <laughs> Yes, that's right. I can totally empathize with that. <laughs> just don't want to screw up. No, that's exactly right. And screwing up may include sitting in a dark reception room. So anyway, <laughs> it, 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 she didn't fire me. We know that. Right, right. Oh, it's okay. So eventually some people showed up to work. Yes. And walk me through that. Just tell me about what the place felt like. What was the culture of a magazine like in 1954? Well, it was basically composed of a small number of editors, all very good, a significant number of writers, all men. This is one distinguishing feature of the place. Um, no, that isn't right. There was one, uh, one woman writer at that time. And a kind of bullpen operation of what we then called researchers. This was the, um, uh, the opening entry-level job. Uh, if you wanted to work for Fortune and you were a woman, it was your only access to getting a job on Fortune. And nobody thought twice about that. That was just the way things were in the Henry Luce empire. And researcher basically meant reporter. That's right. And eventually we changed the name and started calling them a reporter. But it was for a long time it was researcher. So the idea was researchers would go out, report a story, deliver all their notes. No. Okay. Uh, okay. I'm going I'm I'm to interrupt you. Please interrupt no, and no. correct The idea was to. that two people would be assigned to a story, a writer and a researcher. And the two of them would embark on this story, which might take a month, six weeks, two months. And um, the researcher had certain uh, responsibilities. Uh, she, she made most of the travel arrangements, but that, that was just kind of basic. She sat in on the interviews, was 
usually given a chance to ask questions if she had some she wanted to add to what the writer was saying. She then came back and typed up all the notes from the interviews, doing it in one way or another, whatever style she thought was best for that, and then became the checker on for accuracy on the piece. Uh-huh. So she, was, she did nothing else, nor did the writer usually, did nothing else during that period but work on that story. Work on that one story. Yes. And how long would you get to work on a story? Well, it would be anywhere from, the average time would be six weeks, I'd say. From a month to two months would be normal. You took that job when you were 24, right? Yes. So when you showed up when you were 24 and you started going out and, and being the researcher on these stories, did you know what you were doing? Of course not. No, I must say there was a period of a sort of break-in period in which you worked on uh, columns. One was called Products and Processes. Another was called Short Stories of Enterprise, and, and they were just uh, they were usually about tiny private companies that had made a mar- their mark. One of them was Head Ski that I worked on. So I did a period there where I was. It was a break-in period, and I think, indeed, most of the people who came, and certainly if they were 24 years old and had no experience doing what Fortune did, uh, they were given these as the entry point into work. And then maybe a year, six year and six months afterward, I began to be put on what we called middle-of-the-book stories. Uh-huh. And middle of the book stories were slightly longer. Very, very much longer. The 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 columns were short items about right. a, a new product, a new process. And at this point, Fortune was monthly. Monthly. And sort of known for doing these big yes, long stories. Yes, exactly. And is that what you wanted to be doing? I mean, writing those stories. Well, you know, I did not have any ambitions of wanting to write those stories. I my ambition was confined to wanting to work for Fortune. <laughs> I had originally started out thinking I wanted to work for Time or Life, and my I'd had a my degree at the University of Missouri was magazine journalism, and then I had a boyfriend at Maytag who read Fortune, so naturally I started to read Fortune also, and uh, I thought, wow, this is a great magazine. And then I had I was interviewed by Time, Life, and Fortune, and the only one that liked me was Fortune. <laughs> And, of course, that was just so lucky because I turned out to be uh, suited for that work. I had no idea. Maybe I would, if I'd gone to work for time, I would think I was suited for that work. But um, Well, why do you think you were suited for the, the work you ended up well, doing? Business came easily to me, although I knew very little about it when I started. I, I didn't even know that profits were more important than revenues. <laughs> I knew nothing. But but then I but I picked it up very quickly and eventually I picked up accounting very easily and we have many writers at Fortune who who hate the arithmetic part of stories right. and and accounting they they want no part of it whereas I thought it was interesting from the very beginning. How did you pick it up? I mean, was it just something that came naturally? Was it like doing real homework? When you walk into an office, you're 24, you don't know the difference between profits and revenue. Right. How, how do you teach yourself business? Well, I got very lucky and I, I did well enough at my uh, first few years of being with the magazine that I was promoted to an administrative job. I became assistant chief of research. There was a woman named Mary Johnston who was rather famous for hiring people and she uh, needed an assistant and I was made it. 
at the age of probably 28, maybe something like that, and was given responsibility for administering, because she's one of the people who really didn't like mathematics or accounting, uh, the brand new Fortune 500. Right. So I liked the accounting that was a part of running the Fortune 500, and I just I taught myself accounting while I was doing that. There was an editor assigned to it, too, but as far as the actual collection of the data, I was in charge of that. And and uh, accounting just came very naturally. I don't I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you sort of started to figure out accounting. What about interviewing? Interviewing. Did that come naturally to you? It did not probably come naturally, but the fortune system there of having two people who were sent out on a story was made to order for teaching people how to do interviews because you were sitting here with these senior men, all men, and they were asking the questions and you were listening and you were saying to yourself, how did he think of that? And uh, why didn't I think of that? And uh, by the time you finished this process, several years of this process, you'd had all the experience you needed to do interviews well. Right. And now we don't have that today at Fortune. I still speak of it as we uh, we d- don't have this combination. We had to give it up because it was uh, it was uneconomic eventually to send two people out on a story, and it's a shame. Golden age of magazines, and you could send two people out on it, a story it for really weeks was, at a time. It really was, really was. But a great time to sort of uh, learn how to do this. It absolutely you 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 worked with very very smart writers and enjoyed it and picked up all the accumulated wisdom that they had picked up over the years. It was a great experience to as a as a working uh, environment. I'm sure. And, okay, so as you're sort of figuring out how to be a reporter, you're figuring out how to navigate New York City, you're figuring out how to get, navigate the magazine, you've mentioned a couple of times already that it was sort of all men in positions of leadership and, and yes. prominence at the magazine. At one point, did it, occur to you or did it occur to you that you could be doing those jobs? I don't think that it it really exactly occurred to me. I had no feeling uh, that I I was not offended um, or didn't feel any disrespect. It was just the way the Henry Luce empire ran. And so I was not wishing I had that I should be out of here, should get out of here. And uh, or anything like that. I was having too too good a time, really too good a time. <laughs> I was going overseas occasionally because if the story was overseas, you went overseas. I went to the Panama Canal when we did a story about the Panama Canal after the Suez Canal fell into trouble. I was going out to interview people like Desi Arnaz in in, um, uh, in Hollywood. Every story was new and exciting right. because I was learning something on every story. So I was not restless, not restless at all. When when the invitation come became and it did for me to be a writer, I was I was pretty surprised. You didn't think it was going to happen. I just didn't think about it. I mean, yeah. I, mean, I know you must think that's crazy, but it was not something that I was, I was getting paid pretty well, and uh, I was enjoying the work so much that I just, I didn't spend any time thinking about it. It's a fair answer. I mean, like, it, you know, if, if you sit back and read, you know, you, you published this sort of incredible memoir in Fortune, and if you sit back and read that, it's, it, it's, it's kind of the same thing as that Brant Rickey thing. Like, it, for me, it's hard to imagine that you weren't thinking about it 
you know? Uh, I think it's a big difference between the young people of today and the young people then. We were much more content to go along for literally years doing work when maybe we could have done higher work. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't think the young people today ever assume that that should be the case. Right. Nobody wants to wait. No, that's exactly right. We might also think too much, or at least maybe I think too much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like I, I, I think there's something uh, there's something valuable in just I wasn't thinking about it. I was doing the work, which is basically what I'm hearing you say. Yes, right. And don't forget, I came from when we said this little town, a thousand people. The fact that I was in New York working at a job that was pretty important, it was pretty unusual. So I I think that there's no reason to think that I should have been discontent. It was just too much fun. It was too much fun. I'm going to uh, interrupt things uh, quickly for a second, tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. And uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this is real. This is true. Aaron and I are working on a project. It's going to come out in a couple months. Uh, we'll tell you about it, I'm sure, on the show. Uh, and for this project, we needed a website. And Aaron, what did you build this website with? I had about nine minutes before you told me I absolutely had to have it done. And so I <laughs> built it with Squarespace. It's a true story. We built it using Squarespace. It looks great. It looks great on the web and on your phone. It did not take Aaron very long at all. <laughs> and uh, it's a procrastinator's delight. Squarespace is great. It's only eight bucks a month. You don't even need to pay if you want to try it out. You don't have to put down a credit card. If you like it and you do end up paying, use the code Longform at checkout. You get ten percent off. Uh, it really could not be any easier. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Okay, here I am back with Carol. There are these stories of experiences you did have in a sort of male-dominated universe that I think our listeners, many of whom are younger, who are, who are uh, sort of interested in or working in media today might, might feel like a... I don't know, actually, how they'd feel about it. Uh, one of them was when you were, you were a researcher, there was some writer who would make passes at everyone. Yes, he was, he was uh, well-known around the office for making uh, passes. And I later found out he was well-known among the men also for that. You oh, know, really? I, don't, I don't mean make, making passes at the man. I mean, well-known that he was a Lothario. <laughs> uh-huh. and, uh, and what was your response when he made his inevitable pass to you? Well, I slapped him. Um, <laughs> Which I'm sure sounds very old-fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. But it doesn't sound like someone who was, um, it maybe didn't sound like, you know, someone to whom the idea that this could change hadn't occurred. I don't know. I, I, I disassociate those two things. I mean, this was a, this was a, um, a built-in problem, supposed, I imagine, about the writer-researcher, all the, all the writers, with one exception, were men. All the researchers were young women. Um, it, it's amazing, probably, that there weren't some scandals that came out of this. But as far as I know, that there weren't. There were some marriages that actually came out of it. But I, I don't. I never thought of that uh, incident of slapping that guy as <laughs> connected to the gender thing. <laughs> Obviously, just, it's a gender thing, but but just an uh, occupational hazard. <laughs> Uh, yes, I guess I would think that. And I, I, I don't. It didn't occur to me, and I don't think it would have happened that he would have gone in to the boss and said, "Get rid of this woman. I don't like her." Right. You were too good a researcher. The boss would have said, "And why is it you don't like her? Tell right, me the right. story." <laughs> <laughs> well, you tell me the story also of the uh, the economic club. Okay, 
the economic club is uh, the one example of where I did meet some uh, uh, gender uh, problems. The Economic Club um, black tie event had well-known businessmen come to speak, and the speaker on this particular occasion was Bob Hack from the New York Stock Exchange, and I'd been working on a story about the New York Stock Exchange, and the Economic Club called Fortune to ask us to send somebody uh, to the dinner, and an associate called of mine, an assistant of mine, called back and said, I would be the person coming. And the man, Dwight Eckenberg, I remember his name so well, uh, said, no, she won't be coming. We do not allow women at the dinner. And I called him up myself. And I said, well, I'm the logical person. I'm working on this story. I'm really the logical person to come. And he said, well, our problem is we do not want any frivolous little Smith girls looking for a a free dinner and the chance to spend an evening with 1,000 men in black tie. (laughs) So my joke became, well, I didn't go to Smith. And I just let the other part of that hang out there. (laughs) So I went, and uh, they did allow me to come. Uh, They wouldn't allow me to sit at the Merrill Lynch table, and I later sued them. But I lost the suit. Um, I I sued that there was a New York law that seemed to um, uh, apply to discrimination in this case, gender discrimination. Um, But it was a private club, and they had the right to do it, and I lost the suit. But eventually they gave in, and I... I later on I got invited to join the economic club, which I t- turned down. <laughs> you turned them down. <laughs> I turned down. Yeah, good. I'm surprised that that's sort of your one story of gender discrimination. Why do you think that is? I think that uh, other things beside um, the gender of the person uh, interviewing them gets to be on a CEO's mind when the questions get tough or interesting, or it becomes apparent that the uh, interviewer, whether it's male or female, has done some homework and is there on a serious um, expedition. And uh, so I think gender ceases to matter very quickly in an interview. Now, uh, Oriana Falacci thought gender a woman's gender was helpful to her in interviews. Um, I never felt that particularly either, but that may be more true than than not. Mm -hmm. Maybe men are being gentlemanly. Who knows? Because I certainly wasn't interviewing many women. Right. What I just heard you say was the stakes were so high for these CEOs when you called them and wanted to do a story that the fact that you were a woman was <laughs> just couldn't really register because they had a lot of other things to worry about. It was extraneous to what they were thinking about. I, I do think that's true. And it also, even though when you got to Fortune, it was such a kind of male-dominated place, that didn't end up really being a problem for you either. It didn't. I think you can um, uh, legitimately say, why wasn't it more of a problem? But it just wasn't a problem. I was getting ahead. I was... I was uh, uh, I was getting to be a more and more experienced researcher. I was having interesting times on sur- I was learning. I was so interested in learning. To this day, I'm still interested in learning. I just didn't have any reason to sit around and, and, and think about how, um, how terrible it was to be so low on the, on the board. Do you remember like the first long story you wrote? I do. Actually, I remember the first two very well. One one was called, You May Be Missing a Bet in Bonds. 
which I was greatly helped out um, on by my husband, who was a bond salesman at that time, so that I learned a lot about uh, just bonds uh, from him. I'd come home and say, I do have this question. Um, my second story, after I'd been promoted full-time to a middle-of-the-book writer, which was a major step, was called uh, Should a Company Promote Its Own Stock? And the piece I wrote was not very good, I'm sorry to say. And what I hadn't done was do enough reporting. I just hadn't gotten the message about how much reporting, how broad the reporting needed to be uh, for any subject that we took up in a middle of the book story. But I certainly did get the message from my editor that I had, my, from my favorite editor, that I had been a little disappointing in what I turned in. It was just thin? It was thin. It was very thin. I, it's a perfect word for it. That story made me realize that I had to expand my reporting in directions that were probably more extensive than most other fortune writers were using because I had to get so well-versed in a subject, I had to know so much more than I could actually put down on paper that it was extraordinarily important to what kind of story I could turn in. And I've never stopped that. And, and as a result, I have boxes of my files uh, sitting around that I have to do something with. Well, how do you know now when you've done enough reporting? Well, um, a writer, one writer, the same one actually that I slapped back there, that re told me that you quit reporting when you start hearing the same thing over and over again. Uh, that can take a long time. <laughs> There's a kind of consistent thing in your stories, which I really loved. There's a tremendous pride, not just in the work, but in the impact the work has. Mm -hmm. Like you reference a lot in your own pieces, like an article I wrote in X year, Shortly thereafter, that person lost their job or whatever. You know, it, it, it's like a, you take some pride in the impact these stories have. And I wonder, as you, were, as you were sort of getting your legs under you as a reporter and as a writer, once you got that writing job, whether you wrote stories hoping they would have an impact or whether you were just telling stories. I think I probably always, or at least almost always from the start, uh, wished that they once they were on paper, they were also sending a message out there that somebody might pay some attention to. Was there an overarching kind of theme? Was there something that you kept coming back to that felt really important that wasn't going reported? I don't think it was originally. Eventually, I got very um, exercised about uh, earnings management and uh, accounting chicanery, yeah. and I, I used every opportunity that I could to talk about that, even though some of the uh, sources I had almost derided the idea that uh, I should be criticizing stuff that they sort of took for granted. Right. But I never, I never was satisfied uh, with what they were arguing. And so I had a little bit of a pulpit at, at Fortune eventually, and I used every opportunity I could to say, hey, straighten up and fly right. Right. I want to get into those stories. I want to get into uh, your uh, investigations into chicanery. But there's one step, I think, in the Carol Loomis story that we, we have uh, skipped. We just need to roll back the tape a little bit. Okay. 1966. Yes. Is when you met Warren Buffett. I actually think it was 67. It took me a long time to actually pin down the date when it was. And I finally 
came to a conclusion that it was early 67. And what was, what was the context of that first meeting? Well, the first reference to Buffett had taken place in 1966 when I wrote a story about A.W. Jones, who is sometimes uh, given credit for forming the first hedge fund. I really don't think he did. Two things about Jones, right? One, one was he was a fortune guy, old he, fortune he had, reporter. He had written for fortune. I, it was before I came there, and so I never knew him there. And your story about him, you coined the term hedge fund, right? Well, it's questionable whether I really did. And every time somebody says that, and here is my latest opportunity, I, I say, I'm not sure I did. <laughs> but people give me credit for it. And it may be true. I just don't know. I think for the for the purposes of the long form podcast, you coined hedge fund. Okay, I'm giving I, you credit. You run the long the long form podcast. I'm going to have to let you make that decision. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So the first Buffett reference is in that Jones story. In the Jones story, I spelled his name wrong. Um, one T, right? One T. My husband, who was in Wall Street then in a job, and as a matter of fact, has spent his entire career in Wall Street, went out to try to talk to Warren. He was a salesman. My husband, John Loomis, was a salesman, and he hope, went out to Omaha to talk to Warren, hoping that he might get some business for me. He was with, John was with a firm called Faulkner, Dawkins, and Sullivan, which is one of the many that Sandy Weil brought up, brought up over the years. And um, so John and Warren had lunch, and had, John got in to see Warren, which was amazing. They had lunch. They liked each other. And I'm sure that John mentioned to him that I worked for Fortune, and that interested uh, Warren. So when he and his uh, uh, late first wife, Susie, came to New York a couple of months later, they asked us to have lunch. So that was really the beginning of, of a friendship that extended and still does. What was he like? What was Warren Buffett like in 1967? He was immediately impressive. My husband had come home saying, I think I just met the smartest investor uh, in the country. And I think I probably rolled my eyes like wives do it at the overstatements of their husbands. But then I met Warren, and I could see from like in the first five minutes that this guy probably was the smartest investor in the country. And so that's, that's the biggest thing. He was very nice, had a great sense of humor, which he maintains. And his wife was wonderful, too. And, and he was... He was interested. He, he, he said to me, what are you working on right now? And I said, well, it's Fortune 500 time, and I spent the day uh, working, on, uh, working on an oil company that has some revenues that it mentions in the, in the footnotes to the financial statements, but doesn't claim as revenues in the official statements. And I said, we have to decide at Fortune. And he said, Warren said immediately, Coastal states gas you're talking about. <laughs> and I said, yes. So I was immediately interested that he knew this rather arcane little problem that right. I had been working with uh, that morning. And it was just amazing. I, I just knew that he knew everything that I would like to know. I uh, Really, you know, his mind was took for granted all these business facts that I wished were in mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm so I've been so excited to talk to you about this. I, I, the more I read about you and and Buffett, the the more it felt like one of the most kind of unique relationships in uh, between a journalist and a subject. It, it is that no I that I'd ever heard. Yes, 
I'm just going to uh, list some things just so our, our listeners get the full context here. One is that you and your husband bought a bunch of shares of Berkshire Hathaway when you guys met, right? Yes, very soon afterward, yes. Uh, for like, I think I think it was <laughs> like 22 bucks a share? Well, actually it was 18 to begin with. <laughs> the first that we bought, John sold next year because Warren was still accumulating shares at that time. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want any of his friends to be buying shares. Why? Because he was buying shares. And he, you know, he didn't want other people in there. And he told John about that after we'd bought it, and um, and so John just sold it at eight, the eighteen dollars a share. And we didn't get back in uh, for a couple years thereafter when it was okay. So one part of this relationship with Buffett is that you own shares in Berkshire. Yes, and still do. And still do never and never, never have sold a share. Right. One of the great investments you could possibly make. You only need to make one great investment in your life, and this was it. Right. Another one is you've edited his uh, letters for more than 40 years. Well, it's, I think it's 37, but nevertheless, okay. it's, it's, it's something like that. All uh-huh. right. For, you spent 37 years in, uh, completely outside your role in Fortune. Yes. And then the third is that you've written about him quite a few times in Fortune. Yes. Well, I guess I have two questions. One is, how did you navigate the crazy ethical minefield I just laid out there? And then uh, the second one is, how helpful was he to you as a business reporter? So when you were just saying that when you first met him, you said, how could I get some of those facts in my own mind? Right. How You guys talk every day. You play bridge all the time. How did, how did that relationship help you as a journalist? Those are my two well, questions. Well, let's come back to the the yeah the crazy ethical part of it. Okay. It it's an un, un, very unusual. The crazy unethical part of it has been dealt with in one of two ways. I have never taken a cent of money from Warren. A cent. It is done out of friendship. The editing of his annual report. Right. Second, when I first wrote about him in 1988. I insisted that high up in the story, either the first or second paragraph, that it say that I was a friend of his, a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder and editor of his annual report. Mm -hmm. And that has continued all the way through. So the reader always knows that this is the case. And you have to balance, if, if you don't think it should be that way, you have to balance with with what you've got, if you have a writer who knows a subject so well and has the opportunity to explain this extraordinary guy to the reader, do you say, well, this writer shouldn't do it if we can do it ethically, which we thought we did, and the decision of that first managing editor and of everyone since has been that that is a big, big counterweight and should be, it should take precedence over the other things which can be dealt with by disclosure. That sounds right. It, it feels to me like it's also such an extraordinary relationship and his career has also been so extraordinary, so completely out of sort of the realm of possible that uh, it's kind of one of these situations where like the rules don't really apply. It's, it's sort of too crazy. Right. It is too crazy. And don't. And I, I should mention one other fact. One other fact. I backed the right horse. <laughs> yeah. And that's important. I hope that if I hadn't backed the right horse, it would have been clear to me pretty soon that I hadn't, and that none of these this close connection would have uh, would have would have continued. Mm-hmm. But the fact was, 
Warren's career has been so extraordinary and exemplary in so many ways, ending with this vast amount of philanthropy that he has going on, that um, it comes back to, I picked the right horse. Yeah. How did picking the right horse help your journalism? I did learn about a lot from Warren over the years about insurance accounting, very definitely, which is one of the most um, exotic, arcane branches of accounting. But just in general, about how to think about investments, I still, when I make my own investments, which I do, I still think about things that I feel that Warren has taught me about how to think about investments. Like you should buy the entire, you should think of yourself as buying the entire company, not a share. Uh, you should look at what the, the this uh, entire company is worth and and think, well, is the profits that it's pl- throwing off, does it make it worth that? Worth that? I still um, I bring that into my thinking every time I'm thinking about an investment. And I learned from Warren and still do. Every time I talk to him, there's something likely to be something that I learn uh, from him. When I had a, a story that I was doing that I thought he might know something about, I could call him up and say, have you got any opinions about this subject? Yeah. That was a, a great thing to be able to do that. There's just no question. I imagine, especially on these stories where, like, you wrote a series of pieces in the mid-'90s on derivatives. That was a big one. Those are impossible to understand, almost impossible to understand. Ended up nearly singing the economy. Uh, but those articles are written in this like fantastically clear English. And I, I wondered reading them whether Buffett was there somewhere sort of he- like helping you think about those things clearly. Well, I'm sure he did. I certainly talked to him on the derivative stories. And one of them, I, th- I think maybe the second one, I, qu- I quoted him um, in there. I would say the clarity, and thank you very much for your remarks about that. I would say the clarity is a lot of hard work by the writer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Clarity about derivatives is is not easy. And I I remember thinking that those, the first one particularly, was one of the hardest stories I had ever worked on. Why was writing about derivatives clearly so hard? Well, just to begin with, I didn't want to do this story. And I got talked into doing it by an editor, and bless her heart for making me do it, or at least encouraging me to do it. And secondly, I didn't understand derivatives at all when I started. I, I really started from ground zero. And so I had to learn everything that eventually turned up in that first article in 1994. And then I had to go interview several different people and get their stories about derivatives out of them. And it was hard work. Um, I, I, I still think of that as, as a, a story that really called out every bit of effort that I could, I could bring to it. You have this thing, you do this thing in your stories all the time, where uh, one thing you do is you'll foreshadow early on, say, uh, here's some problem, we're going to get to that in a little bit. But then you start sections of stories all the time with sort of sentences that are so direct to the reader that it feels like I'm kind of sitting over a drink with you and you're explaining it to me. You sort of like sit down and kind of trying to very plainly talk to people as though you're sort of telling them a story, which is a really powerful thing to do when you're trying to explain, say, derivatives, something that like, uh, I've read both those stories. They were great. I don't know that I could totally explain all of that stuff to you right now. 
was that a was that just how you naturally wrote or was that a, a conscious decision a way of trying to make these kind of complex topics a little bit more accessible I think it was a combination of those two things I remember somebody uh, the head of the copy room early in my career remarking that that I had a style that nobody else seemed to have and I said I do I said I, I, I didn't know that but apparently she was saying she was seeing something I actually didn't see I had the help of great editors fortune has been a repository of great editors over the years and a lot of what you see in a fortune story is a great editor working with a writer who likes it and wants to be wants to be see it's their material his or her material improved you weren't precious about your writing no <laughs> um, and then no I, I definitely wasn't uh, to this day I I am always thanking my editors I think that as I went along I became aware that people liked clarity in a story and that if I could do a really good job of explaining something that was extremely complicated and so many things that I wrote about were that I would be a big help to the reader on on the story. That and fairness. I, I feel that fairness is something appreciated by the reader and comes through to them. What's a way that manifests? Like what do you mean when you say fairness? I think it's choice of words. It's choice of the argument against saying the argument against that is is this, but when you really look at it, the point is still there. This company should not have done what it did. Right. That's a very simplistic example. No, but that 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 I mean like you know I was thinking about the that the HP story, the pieces on 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 Carly. A couple of times in those stories, you would say this is the argument Carly would make. Mm-hmm. That's how you would start that yes. counter section. Yes. Uh, and then you would say, and this is why that's wrong. <laughs> but I remember that uh, no no less than the uh, editor-in-chief of Time Incorporated uh, was a little bit worried about the fact that there were parts of the story that seemed to him to negate. There were favorable parts of the story that seemed to him to negate the argument that she wasn't doing a good job. And I, I remember, I remember saying to him, "Well, it's the facts. This, this is true. There is this good to say about her, and there is this bad to say about her. And sometimes I think that you, you have that in the story. Most stories aren't uh, cut and dried, one side or the other. There's right. usually some counter argument. Although your stories often ended with pretty strong conclusions. Yes. How did you have the confidence to sort of say, "This is how it is." I mean, sometimes they would end with, barring incredible, an incredible turnaround or a very unlikely turn of events, this company is going to fail, which is slightly outside the like world of objective journalism and certainly some business writing. I mean, it was, a, a lot of what you wrote was, say, in the heat of the moment, kind of in the heat of the, uh, of the moment of a deal, let's take a real look at what this is and uh, maybe the odds are, are not as good as investors want them to be. I think that Fortune had to bring this kind of thing to um, its stories. Most of it's the issues that it writes about have been discussed many times in the newspapers. And if we don't have a point of view, uh, what is it that we're bringing to the party? So 
I think I knew from the very first of the time that I was at Fortune that uh, a point of view was something we wanted to have. We didn't want to end up with a, sto- a story with those, I hate that, stay tuned. I th- because we wanted to say, well, what we thought, well, we didn't think the Time Warner uh, AOL merger was going to work. And we wanted to say that. I turned in a story about General Motors my editor said, I want you to do the General Motors story. He, did, he didn't say the definitive story about General Motors, but that's what he meant. He did not say that. But I turned in a first draft that equivocated in the lead, and he said, you can't do that. He said, you've spent two months on this. You ought to be able to tell the reader what you think. Is this company going to make it or not? I knew immediately that if I had to come down on one side or the other flatly, that I would have to come down on the side that General Motors was going bankrupt. So my second draft, that's what I said. Did you ever have a point of view that was stronger in the piece than you really felt? I don't believe so. Eventually, I I got the status of a writer who could quit. And uh, my husband had a good job on Wall Street. I had no economic uh, reason to work. You had those Berkshire shares. I had Berkshire (laughs) shares. I think my managing editors knew that if I couldn't agree with what they wanted to put under my name, Mm -hmm. you know, that's very important. I just would have said, well, you better find some other way to run this story because I don't want my name on it. No, that never happened. In any of those cases, and including maybe, I mean, you wrote, this quite quite rough piece and prescient piece when AOL and Time Warner merged that uh, that ended, what was the line? Something about rolling a boulder would, up an alp? It will be like pushing a boulder up an alp. <laughs> yeah, that last line of the piece. That's right. And everything you said basically came to pass. Right. But I, I wonder, you know, you, you talk a lot about the amount of, of research you would do. And I read this other line that you said... Uh, You've never met a document you don't love. That's right. Uh, Still have most of those. (laughs) On some of these pieces where you did take uh, uncomfortable positions, how much of that came before you started reporting the story? Like, did you have an idea of that AOL Time Time Warner merger before you started doing the story? Did you have your opinion formed and the reporting backed it up? No, I did not have my opinion formed. I did... I put some math into the story that showed how difficult it was going to be for this company merger to work. And um, I did not have my opinion. I formed it during the two weeks. That was two weeks I had to do that one. Quick turnaround. Uh What was it like writing about your own, the fate of your own company? I don't think it was that hard. I think it would have been hard for a young writer just starting out. I was, by that time, um, someone who, if the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal been able to write a um, headline that said, um, Fortune Fires Writer Who Disagreed with the Merger, that would have been very embarrassing for, for Fortune and um, for Time Incorporated. So I don't think it was that hard to do that. Was it ever hard to write those pieces, sort of the kind of emperor has no clothes pieces about CEOs? I mean, people that you'd gone and talked to and then to write they don't really understand their business or uh, I think their time has passed or, or whatever that conclusion might be. One managing editor said that you have to build up a sufficient lack of humility to do this. And um, uh, I, I didn't find it that hard. I, if I'd been wrong, I, I would have been wrong. <laughs> so knowing you're right, 
made it. Uh, well, I didn't know. I, I didn't know I was right, but I did know I had evidence that had convinced me that I was right. Mm-hmm. Might not have turned out that way. I want to go back to something you were saying earlier about curiosity and loving to learn and uh, never losing that. I wonder if that connects to another thing, which I feel like I I just want to I just want to know like your secrets oh. <laughs> um, is about longevity. I mean, <laughs> you started at Fortune January twenty fifth, nineteen fifty four, and you retired last summer. Yes, July twenty fourteen. Yes, that's a uh, that's a good run. That's a good run, long that's run, serious <laughs> run. How do you explain doing this job for sixty years? First of all. I thought I had one of the best jobs in the world, journalistically. I, I still still think that. People who have great jobs, who go to work with people they like, in a magazine that they think is doing uh, serious, important stuff, that's a pretty good gig when you get right down to it. And I was lucky, lucky to have good genes, so I could keep on doing that um, uh, for a long time. And I must say, my um, my editors uh, gave me some breaks about taking time off that were very important to me. Uh, when I had my second child and we moved to the country, to the country, to the suburbs, um, I just felt that I didn't want to work 12 months a year, and I asked to take three months off in the summer. And so I began uh, doing that in 1967. And later, I expanded that to five months off. <laughs> total time worked out sure. of total time elapsed is a little bit less than it looks like, okay, but nevertheless. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And some people thought I'd never retire, so I did, lead. I did retire after 60 years. Okay, so part of the answer is that you, you got a tremendous deal from your editors, which was to give you this time off, which uh, I understand why they did it. Oh, okay. You, know, you got you to uh, keep, your, keep your best people happy. But- how did you stay curious and engaged and interested and have the energy uh, to keep going? I mean, you know, I, the, this one of these facts that just blew my mind about you, you, you won a, uh, a, like a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1993. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And then kept working for 20 years. <laughs> right. <laughs> and asked at the, in my speech whether you could win it twice. <laughs> 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 or that, something like um, Fortune was quite unique in that we didn't have beats. I did do a lot of stories about banks and about Wall Street and so forth, but we really didn't have beats. And so every time we would get an assignment, it was likely to be about a subject we knew very little about. And we're going to have to learn from ground zero. And that made it very, very interesting. And um, uh it was a very distinctive kind of work in which you moved from subject to subject, all of which became interesting to you. Once I got into a subject, I, I found that I had kind of acquired a lifelong interest in that subject. So I still read everything that if I see a story about um, uh, the New York Stock Exchange, which I wrote stu- two stories about, I, I want to know what's happening now. And so the variety of coverage the variety of work was extremely unusual, and I think that that was what made it so so great for me anyway. Did you ever just feel like you kind of had it figured out? I never felt like I had it figured out. My very last story on BlackRock was a huge problem for me, and uh, just simply because 
I hadn't started off with a very clear idea about why we were doing this story. My managing editor had a slightly different feeling about why we were doing this story than I did, and I felt I was probably didn't agree with him on. And that last story, an editor was so important to me on that story. It turned out fine in the end, but it was it was very hard. I never got anything. And if I had been assigned something the next time, a different subject, I wouldn't have had it figured out either. How do you know when to call it quits? 60 years seemed like uh, a long time to work, and um, the traveling gets har- harder. And I just said to myself, you've got to quit sometime. This sounds like a good time to do it. 60 years and five months. <laughs> had you been thinking about it for a while? Well, I've been thinking about it, but obviously I hadn't uh, pulled the string on it because I could have retired at any time, and, and I didn't. So the relationship with Buffett is this kind of extraordinary outlier. It almost doesn't even play in like the realm of journalistic ethics because it's such a crazy once-in-a-lifetime relationship. But I, I, I am interested in, I mean, you, you said that you're an investor. I know that you had a uh, brief but uh, torturous romance with commodities. Yes. And I'm interested in just in uh, what you see as the role of a business writer in their own personal financial lives. Like, should business reporters be investing? Should there be rules around that? How do you draw that line? Fortune never had any rules um, about the reporters not being able to invest in stocks, which is different from what some other publications have. When I went to Fortune, the one rule was that you could not buy stock in anything we wrote about until 30 days after we had written about it because it was the general idea what there was that a reader could have digested everything we said and gone out and done whatever they wanted to do about buying or selling this stock. That was the situation for all 60 of the years that I was there. We had no rules about buying stock as long as we stuck to that rule, which eventually became unwritten. And even new members, I don't think, even knew about it in in many cases. The subject has come up more recently that we should have rules. And I have argued in writing against that because I said that I learned so much investing in stocks. And you will learn more actually doing investments than you could ever imagine by uh, reading about investments, that I thought it was a way for fortune writers to get smarter, and that I thought any rules that we put in that said we could not buy stock would be wrong. I don't know to what extent my argument, which some other people I think also had, uh, prevailed, but at least there have been no rules put in that I know of. It sounds like you've, throughout the years, had really strong opinions about some kind of foundational aspects of the magazine. The transition from going monthly to bi-weekly was a traumatic one for you. Yes. Going to sort of shorter stories was a was a traumatic one for you. Like, at some point when you have been in a place uh, for as long as you were at Fortune, like, uh, do you feel like you become like the like the kind of soul and the conscience of it? Like, are you are you there to to defend it against itself on some level? I think you do begin to feel that um, uh, that there are certain standards that it uh, needs to live by, and you will argue for those. Uh, and there's some rules that I have kept for myself that n- no longer exist at Fortune. For instance, 
I, I take it back. I believe that they do now exist, but there was a long period when writers could take money for speeches from companies, and I would never do it because um, a rule had existed when I went to Fortune that you couldn't take money from the companies for speeches. So therefore, I said, well, that rule seemed to strike, strike me as best. And um, I, I did think of myself as arguing for standards that I felt, felt were very important and they shouldn't be broken. And I know that a couple of my editors called me mother and said, would say, what does mother, what would mother think about this? <laughs> Can I ask you a question I've been thinking about a lot? What? It's about the balance between optimism and cynicism. Do you think of yourself as an optimistic person? Yes, yes. Do you think that that played a role in in being able to work at the level you did for as long as you did? I've never been asked that question. Now that you mention it, it seems to me it could have helped. I wouldn't have wanted to take on these things uh, as a cynic uh, because... To go in on to a, to subjects, brand new subjects that you don't know that much about, uh, as a in a cynical way, woo, that would be that would be very hard, and not wouldn't produce very good work, I don't think. That sounds right to me. But then there's this other part of your job in particular, which was going and talking to very smart, very powerful people running very large businesses, who were selling you a line a lot of the time Mm -hmm. who weren't being truthful who were maybe selling themselves a line maybe telling themselves a story that uh wasn't really true and and so sort of as an optimist how does that interact with having like a good bullshit detector staying positive and this is something i've read a lot about buffett too is that he's this relentlessly positive person how does that interact with having a uh really sort of savvy, analytical business mind, especially when you were going and interviewing these people uh, who were maybe being less than truthful with you? I think that writing itself makes you realize where there are holes in things. Uh, I know I have said to people, I'm never sure what, what I think until I see what I write. And so I believe that you, even though you're an optimist, the analysis part of you kicks in when you sit down to construct a story or a paragraph or a sentence and you think, oh, that can't be right. And and then you have to go back and you have to sort of rethink it all. I don't know the answer. And I, I do think that I haven't stopped being an optimistic person despite the fact that I did a lot of work over the years that was um, uh, that turned out uh, to uh, poke some holes in some of the lines that I was being dealt. I wonder if you could keep doing that work if you weren't an optimistic person. Probably not. Never had thought of it, but you're probably right. So what are you going to do now? What do you do now? I mean, what do been, I do now? You've been okay. retired a year. <laughs> Well, I haven't been the least bit bored, and I was really a little bit worried that I would. I've given some speeches. Here I'm doing this very interesting thing today. I I had lunch um, uh, today with a, um, a a student from the, the University of Missouri where I went um, who whose professor had asked me if I would have lunch with her when she was working as a Bloomberg intern this summer. What did she want to know? What she want to know? Well, she had a couple of um, uh, story assignments that she wondered if I had any uh, thought about. I mean, I assume you get 
inquiries from young reporters a lot. Do you have like a standard advice for for young journalists? <laughs> and the, my standard advice is also what I told my two kids: find out what time your boss gets in and get in earlier. <laughs> Sit in a dark re- reception room. <laughs> yes, in the dark room. Hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> So you're having lunch occasionally. Oh, you're, then, you're dragging yourself to, to Brooklyn for an interview. My husband and I are bridge players. We've played a lot of bridge. I'm still doing editing on, um, on Warren Buffett's annual reports or any op-eds that he writes. The work this year was particularly hard because it was not particularly uh, long because it was his 50th uh, year of running Berkshire, and the annual report was sort of a double-sized version. What's editing Warren Buffett like? Well, I've said that he missed the class on active verbs. <laughs> <laughs> he sometimes needs suggestions that he changed the order of thoughts. Or maybe you'll say to him, these three sentences, I really believe they belong a paragraph down. Um, and so they're all suggestions. I don't have any really true authority about this, but he's uh, he takes most of them. He claims it's 98%. I don't think it's that high. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, that's always interesting work, I must say. It really is. Remains interesting work. Remains interesting work. Carol Loomis, thank you so much for, uh, for coming in. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Max, you've got a great thing going here. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Molly Bain. Thanks to our sponsors, Tiny Letter and Squarespace. And thank you to Carol Loomis. That was a real honor. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.